It was two years ago Wednesday, and I was driving home from Kansas City. I'd been meeting with some InterVarsity Christian Fellowship staff in the area. We were planning out the rest of the semester. We were hanging out in coffee shops on campus. And I remember on that Wednesday driving home and listening to the radio the whole way home and feeling my hands kind of clenching on the steering wheel. Because of course it was two years ago Wednesday that the WHO announced a global pandemic. And as I listened to the reports, I remember thinking, what does this mean? Like It just felt so surreal. And as I look back, all of that kind of tension and adrenaline in my body, I think that I was actually entering the very first stage of grief, which is denial. And I don't know if you were thinking about where you were a couple years ago or all that you have been through. But I noted this week, I think it was Thursday, a survey was released that the American Psychological Association had conducted. And it was fascinating. They reported that two-thirds of Americans believe the per- that the pandemic has permanently changed their life. And after two years, Six million dead worldwide. A finish line that feels like it keeps moving on people. That weariness and exhaustion was palpable. And the survey is primarily designed actually to measure stress levels in the American public. And they concluded that 80% reported high stress levels, particularly around inflation and issues related to the invasion of Ukraine. Now, these are the highest reported stress levels in all of the 15 years they've conducted this survey. And when you hone in simply to economic concerns around inflation, that number spiked to 87%. And the researchers called this data astounding. Clearly, in the midst of two long years when people have felt widespread grief, loss, continual hardship, and particularly for vulnerable communities, especially communities of color, it felt like a kick when we were down. And I just want to acknowledge that some of you may be coming in with some of those feelings from the last week. Maybe farmers, you've been doing the accounting on planting costs. Maybe you're cutting things from your grocery list or you changed your spring break plans because of gas prices. I don't know how you're coming in, but I want to acknowledge that. And some of us actually, because of the wealth that we have in our community, might actually feel some level of insulation from that, right? I I can absorb some of that. I don't have to sweat it quite as much. I can sleep at night. But however you're coming in, it's interesting that into this context, that we're actually going to go to a challenging teaching of Jesus's in Mark chapter 10. And if you've been reading through Mark's gospel with us, you know every chapter has got like five to ten of these incredible rich little stories packed in. And maybe you're like, you, know, you wish maybe we tackled one of the other stories this week, but we're going to go there together with God's help. And so I want to take us to a story that's going to challenge us, a teaching of Jesus's that will press us to consider if it is our very plenty that keeps us in want. 
if the things that we seem to help think will stave off the inevitable and real vulnerabilities of our human experience, what if those things are actually barriers to following Jesus and entering the kingdom? So let's go to Mark 10, starting at verse 17, if you want to follow along as I read our text for today. We'll just read these 11 verses. And so hear the word of the Lord from Mark's gospel. As Jesus started on the way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've done since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, oh, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Well, last week in the auditorium, some of us had the chance to do a Mark Diggin. We had a fantastic time. We gathered around tables. We had the Mark 9 text printed out that Phil unpacked so well last week for us. And we wrestled together looking for clues and insights into this incredible story of the transfigured Jesus, right? Revealed in glory affirmed by his fierce father, right, for the journey ahead. And the group did an amazing job studying a really challenging text for an hour. And we, we left with more questions than answers. Um, but I wanted to bring a little bit of that learning we had together into this room this morning because I'm passionate about the people of God having both the spirit of God to come to the scriptures and access them, but also tools and equipping to see in community fresh insights together. 
So today, I'm, I'm going to bring a few of those items. One tool we used is the little legend that I provided on the tables. And it looks like this. It's got this kind of color-coded system. We were looking for who's in the story, the characters, the setting, the, the where and when clues, the action, what's happening. And how is it happening? The descriptions, right, that would help us unlock more meaning. And then we covered our text with question marks because there were a lot of questions to ask. And today I want to take us through this particular story in Mark 10 and show you some of those verses in how I studied them even this week on my own manuscript. And we're going to use that as a way to see, can we see something fresh together? So take a look, if you're following along with me, or you can look at the screen, at the first verse, 17. There's a lot in this little verse, and I know it's not the largest on the screen here, but look with me. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. So right away, we've got some characters, right? We've got Jesus, who I circled in purple, and then we've got that man, who I underlined in purple, right, and the pronouns that match, and then good teacher. Now, that was a title that the man gave Jesus, but I kind of did a dotted line around it, and then this question, okay? So we've got the characters, and now for setting, we do have one setting clue in this opening verse, and if you look, there's a little blue rectangle around the three words, on his way, and as we read, that should raise the question, well, where is he going? What's, where is he headed? Where is he coming from? And if you look at the surrounding text in Mark 10, we know that Jesus has left kind of the north, the Galilee region, Capernaum specifically, and come to the southern region of Judea, where the key city is, in fact, Jerusalem, his ultimate destination. This is the place he is now headed, Mark tells us, where as he's told his disciples now multiple times, he must be betrayed, he must suffer and die. So Mark sets the narrative in this direction. Now the man, we don't know a lot about this man, but you can see that there's still a lot of action in this story, both things Jesus does and the man. So it says the man ran up to him and he fell on his knees and he asked a question, right? I underlined those in pink. Now, we can guess that because this man ran and fell on his knees, that this question comes to Jesus with a sense of urgency, maybe even desperation. And this question is fascinating. He says, good teacher, which Jesus is going to address that in a moment. But he asks this question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I put a question mark right away over that because doesn't that question strike you as a little bit strange? Right? What must I do to inherit? Does one do something to inherit? Right? No, someone passes away. There's a death for an inheritance to happen, right? So there's something in the question itself that Jesus will challenge in this man's assumptions. So continuing on, Jesus responds and says, why do you call me good no one's good except God alone. Now notice Jesus does not deny his goodness. He does not deny his godness. But he presses and challenges, right? Because he knows what's going on with this man. And then Jesus says, you know, the commandments. And he rattles off these commandments. And if you count the commandments, you'll count that there's six of them. Someone shout out, how many commandments are there in total? 10, you got it. 
So we have to ask, why does Jesus just lift these six? What about the other four? Well, maybe you'll notice that these six have something in common. These are the six commands that are about loving your neighbor, right? Our relationship with one another. And the the man is quick to say, oh, I did all those since I was a boy. Check, gold star, right? Morally upright, perhaps. He seems pretty confident he is. But what about the commands Jesus does not include? Or the man does not press for him to include? Those four commands, if you remember, all the commands about primarily our relationship with God. Right? We shall have no other gods. The command against graven images, about not taking the Lord's name in vain, about keeping Sabbath. Isn't that fascinating? So now hold that, because now Jesus, and you'll see this verse up here, Jesus looks at the man. And I love the look, I drew little glasses over it. It happens three times in this text. He looks first at the man, and he'll look at his disciples in a minute. He looks at him, and Mark includes this beautiful detail in the text, that he looks at him, and he loved him. He loved him. And as he looked in love at this man, this is what he says. He says, one thing you lack. And this man who has come running and fallen at the teacher's feet is desperate. And you can imagine him leaning in. You know, this is the moment. Yes, I I have the question. What is it? I have everything I need, but what, what, what is this thing that I'm missing? And look at the answer. As Jesus continues, by my count, I actually hear five things. I underline those twice. Go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor. Then then you're going to have that treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. One thing you lack I think this verse is so interesting and raises a lot of questions. Is this the answer the man was looking for? Well, the text tells us next that in response to this, his face falls. It says he goes away sad. Actually, the word is about an intense grieving, right? He's grieving and he goes away. You see, Jesus looked in love at this man and knew that with all he had, he was missing what mattered most. And the text tells us he went away intensely grieved because he had great wealth. It was one thing he needed, one thing he lacked, but Jesus saw That to follow the way of Jesus, which was headed to the cross, to Jerusalem, right? That to receive what was needed, he had to leave behind all that filled his hands. Jesus saw the trap that this man's wealth was. A trap that kept him from following Jesus and entering the kingdom of God. And he offered a prescription, right? He offered a key, but the man could not accept it. 
and goes away. And I imagine Jesus watching this man walk away, sighing and looking now, looking at his disciples who have watched this all unfold, and he says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And look at their response. They are amazed. In this verse, these couple of verses, which you'll see on the screen, I drew these kind of um, wide eyes and high eyebrows over the amazed, their reaction, right? They're amazed at his words, and he says it again. He says, children, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel. That's the biggest known animal in the ancient world. It's easier for a camel to get through the tiniest possible space than for someone rich to enter the kingdom. Now, we know in Mark, as you've been studying, it's so important to make connections to the stories that come right around uh, a text we're focusing on. And if you read right before this story in chapter 10, there was a great little encounter of Jesus with children. So the children are coming to Jesus, and the disciples are like rebuking and shooing them, and Jesus is indignant. In fact, he's so indignant that he essentially rebukes them back and says, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Is it possible that this man's hands and his heart were so full of his riches that that he couldn't receive the kingdom like a child? That he was so consumed with what he could do to get that which he longed for that he could not be a child with Jesus. As you might know, children in the ancient world were not particularly esteemed because they were not very useful. Uh, I myself also, I have a very high value for usefulness, productivity, um, for better or worse at times. And I remember as a new parent, um, Chris and I would often be like, ooh, like, when are they going to do stuff? Like these babies, right? When are the babies going to do stuff? Like discuss poetry and have spiritual conversations and throw the ball around. And um, of course, you know, children develop incredibly and they do incredible things. Um, But they go through these in phases, right? And I remember the stage a little as they were gaining these new skills, that later stage where, you know, kids will do that. They'll build block towers and knock them over, right? And then they'll do it again and they'll knock it over and again. You know the stage? Some of you know this stage. Um, And it's just like it could never get old. And it did get old, I'm telling you, like for me. (laughs) But I love this teaching of Jesus because it gets at me because I feel like Jesus is saying he doesn't so much value our usefulness. He doesn't need us to produce for him. And it's not what these children could bring in their hands, the riches they could offer. It's their hands actually were open and free to receive the embrace of Jesus. The one thing they needed most. And the disciples at this were so amazed. They're called children, and then this image of the camel through the eye of a needle. And they respond and they say, well, who then can be saved? I mean, this guy, if this guy can, he's clearly morally upright. The other gospel writers describe him as both handsome and a ruler and all these things. And there was a 
There was a notion in the ancient world and in Jewish thinking at this time that, that if you had wealth and riches, it meant you were favored by God, that you'd done something right, you were being rewarded for that. And we know that while it can be a blessing, that it's not that simple. But still, they, they just didn't have a framework. This guy can't get it. Who can? And Jesus responds and looks at these children in love. And what does he say? He says, yeah, it's impossible. With man, this is impossible. But not with God. And I think that little word I circled in orange that compares and contrasts might be the most beautiful word in this whole text but not with God. All things are possible with God. I have a really formative memory from my childhood uh, of coming home one day in middle school, and I came into my living room, and my parents were there, and they were both crying, which was not common. And my dad's boss was there, the bishop, because my dad's a pastor. And um, they proceeded to tell us older kids that my dad had lost his job and that we were going to have to file for bankruptcy. And I remember just being shocked. I, I didn't even know we were in any kind of trouble as a family. And they shared more that um, my parents had become increasingly more stressed and desperate and in hindsight, I realized you can't raise a family of 10 on associate pastor's salary, apparently. Um, but I just didn't know this. I had no clue. And my dad, um, in some desperation, had taken money from one of the youth ministry funds of the church to pay our electric bill, to keep our power on. Um, and he found a way to put it back, um, but he got caught. Um, and he got fired. And they didn't press criminal charges, um, but I remember as a middle schooler that this was an incredibly painful and shaming experience. It was in the papers, there was all this gossip and talking about it. And I remember being so confused because I was like, my, what my dad needed, what we needed was help. And this was how church people in a church that had a lot of money, responded. And something in me just broke, both around my relationship with the church and God's people and about money that shaped me for years. And I'm thankful my dad did get some of the help he needed and he wasn't forced to leave the ministry. He wanted to stay in ministry, but he couldn't get a job within like two to three hours of where we lived anymore. So he was assigned to rural parishes around the state and he would commute and live in parsonages. So for most of the rest of my adolescence, my dad lived and worked away and my mom was functionally a single parent to eight kids, many with special needs. And my resentments deepened. I went to college, and I was a little tired of being bitter about all of that, and I wanted to find some things out for myself. 
And I had some really powerful and redemptive experiences in Christian community and started to follow Jesus. And I remember once in a Bible study, uh, studying some texts about money, because Jesus teaches a lot about money and wealth. And I remember saying somewhat self-righteously, I thought at the time, as a good Christian, something like, you know, I don't need a lot of money. I don't want a lot of money, but I just want enough not to worry about it. And maybe you can hear what's a little off under that statement. Because for me, money was security. Money meant mom and dad don't cry. Mom and dad don't fight, they're together. Families are together. I don't have to be afraid. And of course, that's not true. But that was a belief that I held, right? And it kept me from what I really needed. In, in maybe an ironic twist, I, I felt a call into ministry um, as I was finishing my college career. Um, and I felt a call to move home, back to this community and begin students and campus ministry. And in college ministry, um, we raise our financial support as missionaries from churches and givers. And I remember my parents were not very happy about this at the beginning. My mother wanted me to do something much more glamorous than that. Um, but she kind of came to terms and eventually she said um, a little snarkly, she was like, fine, you can be a minister, but just don't ever marry one. Um, and I was like, okay, mom, I married a teacher. So I started this interesting phase where now I was coming back to the very community, the very people who had so challengingly shaped my ideas about God and wealth. And I was coming with need, asking for them to support this ministry. And it was so challenging and it was so healing. Because as Jesus looks at me in love and still to this day, he invites me actually to be in need to need others and be honest about it. And to be grateful. And to be generous. And it's not always easy. Having many more comforts these days, it's challenging. And I feel the why it's so hard because in my security, in my full pantry of food, in the lack of violence or shelling in our neighborhoods, that my children sleep soundly, I can sense that my plenty pulls me away, that it can keep me in this illusion of my own invulnerability. And one of the things that really fascinates me about this story is that in church tradition, people always want to figure out who this guy is in the story. And so there's all these ideas, right? Is this John Mark himself, right? Is this um, Joseph of Arimathea is another theory, the wealthy man who gave his tomb to Jesus to be buried in? Or, or maybe Barnabas, who we know sold all his land and gave it to the early church. And I think we want to know who this is because we really want to believe that the story has a good ending. Right? That is, the man walked away grieved. Something changed. And God made possible a turn, right? And he came back. But I think Mark chose to leave this a nameless person because we're invited into the tension of the story and to say, do, do we see ourselves in this one? Do we see ourselves in this man?
We ought not be deceived. It is indeed a trap. The riches Jesus speaks of. And it's tempting to say this is just a story, uh, not really about wealth, but about a relationship with God, that one thing we lack. And it is indeed a story about that. But it is also about the trap of riches and wealth. For Christ and his kingdom, which Mark writes extensively about, will always move away from human wealth and power. So imagine like similar polarities on a magnet. They repel one another. And any time as the kingdom has gone forward in new expressions, that it has somehow become entrenched in the trappings of human wealth and power, the center of Christianity moves because they will always go away from each other. So we're invited to ask this morning, what is our attitude toward wealth and money? Keller, in the book that's been kind of guiding our thinking um, as we study this text, talks about avoiding this trap and, and asks the question this way, how do you know that money isn't just money to you? He proposes a few things to consider. He says, here are some signs. You can't give large amounts of it away. You get scared if you have less than you're accustomed to having. You see people who are doing better than you even though you might have worked harder or might be a better person and it gets under your skin. And when that happens, you have one foot in the trap. Because no matter how much money you have, though it's not intrinsically evil, it has incredible power to keep you from God. So my challenge out of the text for us this week is to consider how does the trap of wealth keep us from following Jesus? Maybe think about your own stories and life experience that has shaped your relationship with money and informed your thinking today. And secondly, I want us to ask that as Jesus looks at us in love, just as he did this man, what's his invitation for you? So I'd like us to sit even for just a moment now as the worship team comes up in quiet with these questions. And then I'd like to pray for us as we finish. Let's be quiet together for a moment. Gracious God, we're so grateful that you look at us with love. We acknowledge there's no one but you who is good. We imperfectly cannot fulfill the law. We cannot find the thing we lack most. We need your help. God, would you free us from the trap of wealth? Would you free us from the things that keep us, hinder us from entering your kingdom? Would you give us courage this week by your spirit to be honest with our own history and longings and loves that before you we would be free with open hands like children to receive the gift of your kingdom which is impossible for us to grasp ourselves but you in your power give so freely and in love. In your name Jesus, amen.